Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm scared. You should be. I haven't told you anything about what we're going to do. I know, but I just saw I just saw the picture. <gasps> oh, you and... saw the pictures? Okay. Yeah. Well, I didn't I just see the one. You can no, click into it actually because it's um it has the whole the <gasps> oh, whole God. sequence. Oh, no, no, no. Don't don't, just, don't No, 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 don't no. no, no. I'm just looking at picture 1. I'm just looking at picture 1. I can't look at the rest. I saw a clip of the second and I can't. Okay. So before we actually get into it, well, I guess we should just start by saying a huge thank you to everybody because last night was crazy with the merch drop. Should we say thank you? Thank y'all. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad everybody was so excited. Me? I know. It was It was like staying up late on Christmas Eve was the feeling I was having in my stomach yeah. where I just kept seeing like everybody commenting and talking about it and we were really we were really excited about it because we we had a lot of like back and forth and correspondence planning it and putting together like what is it going to look like what's the design of it so just to see how well it was received and how excited everybody got for the hoodies and the hats that was more than i could have anticipated i had no idea people would people would go as hard as they did last night and creepers Seriously, do send us pictures of yourselves when you get it. I know, like, I know. It's I gonna it. actually make me cry. <laughs> Any it's sort of can't trust it. county out in the world. We need more of it. And I hope it's a conversation starter. I hope people see them. They go, "What does yeah. that mean?" And people are just like, "You'll never know." <laughs> because I you're county by me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because you. I also kind of wonder if people will read it and be like, "Can't trust county." Like I get it. But like ex- expand on that it, thought. It, like it's it's not just a statement that sits alone as a statement. There is lore behind it. Yes. There's a history yes. here with two of us. Yes. Also, another thing, I, I wrote this in my notes because I was like, don't forget to tell Sue about what happened last night on Hulu. Um, okay, so we were talking about how I was watching Hulu last night, watching America's Next Top Model. I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, so Hulu I watched with ads and you know how there are like, like pharma commercials that are like, Ozempic, your way to happiness. And it's like, yeah. I caused liver cancer, like those types of things. I don't pay attention to the commercials. I was on my computer actually doing research for this case, but I tuned in, like I clocked into what the tune was, like the jingle that was playing because I wasn't really paying attention to it. And then I was like, what did she just say? And it was a, it was a commercial for Crohn's disease. 
which is not funny. I know people who have Crohn's, but the jingle that they wrote for this Crohn's disease, like pharma commercial, <laughs> was all about Crohn's. So it's this woman who was like, I'm not kidding, and I will find you a link to this. She was like, me and my Crohn's disease, control means everything with Sparati. And I was like, there's no way, there's no way that they wrote into a jingle, me and my Crohn's disease, control means everything. Wait, (laughs) was it Otesla? No, it was like, wait, maybe it was. No, it it was like. It was like Sparati or something. Sparati. <laughs> because <laughs> I used to take Skyreezy. Skyreezy? Skyreezy. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. It's Skyreezy. I it bought Skyreezy. Sky <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> yes, I am. You better believe I'm on Skyreezy. Control means everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, my God. Except I don't have Crohn's. I have... <laughs> Intense psoriasis, but it's the same. Wait, so it does the same thing? Yeah, we. It's the same. Like it, we. It's an inflammatory disease, so we can both. Oh, take that makes so much sense. Scarisi, baby. Wait, so you know the jingle <laughs> I'm talking about? Of course, and the and the girl in the commercial in the flowy dress, <laughs> dancing we are... through the streets. That's me. Okay, so this is kismet. We were like, yeah. I was meant to tell you that I saw this. And that's why I tuned in. That must have been something on my subconscious that was like, Skyreezy. <laughs> it's Skyreezy. <laughs> so it's like the jingles that are like, me and my Crohn's disease. <laughs> <laughs> Control means everything. everything. Meanwhile, I'm literally <laughs> injecting it into my right thigh, <laughs> stabbing it into my right thigh. Listen, oh I mean... Everybody's in Ozempic is out there. Everybody's injecting oh left and right. I talked to somebody today about Ozempic because she knows somebody who's on it. And she said her friend who's on it is so nauseous all the time and so unhungry. She forgets to eat until 7 p.m. And then when she does eat, like the most she can eat is like a half a chicken breast before she's like, I, I overate. Like I'm going to be sick. Like I'm really nauseous. It's that intense. She has to be malnourished. She's got to be. Uh, that's my thing with it. I listen. Anybody that's listening, if you're taking it and you love it, you do. You absolutely do. Well, you. some people need it. Some people actually. Or some people need it. It was originally intended for, for diabetes. diabetes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you need it, then you need it. And I say good on you. But people that are taking it to be thin and like skinny or for vanity purposes. Wait, is this going to be the episode where I get canceled? <laughs> As Listen, it's talk. your grave, baby. You dig it. I know. I'm digging my <laughs> you grave. You dig it, and I will pat it with the shovel, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm saying anything so outlandish when I say it's, that it's I really do pocket. think your body your body has got to be, if you go off of it, like mm-hmm. the the boomerang effect, I would think, has to be pretty nuts. What I will say is I do know people can take it in different doses. You don't start off on a dosage that is very, very intense for your body. In fact, a lot of people, even after they go through what's, I think, described as like the peak of their like ride with Ozempic or Wagovi, whatever they're taking, they actually go like shift down to a lower dose for maintenance. Because I think when they start mm-hmm. you off, it's like a very, it's like a quarter of like what the normal dosage is. So maybe it has to, because it's a hormone regulator. It regulates the hormone that is telling you 
effectively to overeat. And people's bodies are built different and people's hormone levels are totally different. But the what she described for her friend, I was like, I, I think your friend probably shouldn't be on it. And what also told me that she wasn't on it was that her insurance did not cover it. Mm. Or told me, told me that she shouldn't be on it. Her insurance did not cover it. And if you are a person who needs it in like a, med- a medical way, usually your insurance will cover it. So she's mm-hmm. paying $1,600 out of pocket every month. <sighs> so is Erica Jane. <laughs> and are your hormones spelled O-Z-E-M-P? <laughs> Dorit deserves an Emmy this season. Kyle. Sutton. Sutton. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't. They're going to kill us. I know. <clears throat> well, anyway, so that's my one thing about Crohn's. And thank you for the merch <laughs> sales. That was amazing. <laughs> uh, let me see if I can shift in to what this case is to be. Because I have not told you thus far what we're going to do. I know you saw that picture. Do you recognize the picture? Do you know the story of that girl? I don't. This might jog your memory because this wasn't too long ago. I guess this happened in twenty. 20- 10 so we would have been we would have been cognizant of the news probably let's see so now that we're back it is a friday well it's a thursday so i'm debating i'm like is this going to come out tonight or come out on friday Mm -hmm. morning but i won't give you a top line for this i'm going to start this episode this friday episode a little bit differently because i think it has to be told in chronological order just like a story But before I jump into it, thank you everybody again for stopping by. I know I thanked everyone for the merch. I know that we were like super grateful for that. But I just want to say thank you again for listening to Creep Time, the podcast. We've been very, very emotional with all of the Spotify raps this year. That was really cool to see everybody's everybody's wrapped and see that Creep Time was number one for so many people. See that some people are in like the top 0.5 or top 0.05% of the fan base. That's crazy. Kendra. <laughs> She's in there. Kendra is in the mix. Oh, Kendra girl is, Kendra. as you said, the third employee of Creep Time yeah. the podcast. <laughs> She's making executive decisions. She's running the books. That's right. We love She's going to be filing our taxes this year, too. Get ready for 2024. That's right. <laughs> she didn't sign up for that, but her 1099 is <laughs> <She> coming. <laughs> we'll put that on merch, too. That's our next drop. <laughs> so thank you everybody for all of the the well wishes around wrapped and it's been it's been very nice and emotional and exciting and thank you for listening if you could we would really appreciate it if you were new here or if you're a returning listener follow and subscribe to the podcast because it really does help our show to grow and we also appreciate all of the reviews because that also helps to spread the word of creep time so with that i'm gonna have to pivot and jump straight in so before i do let me just tell you Stu, because this is gonna move fast and furious you need to brace yourself for what i'm about to do like grab something a chair or a drink but something needs to be grabbed (laughs) the story i'm going to tell you i have seen other people call it this but i am also going to title it her solution how does that title sit with you Unwell. And that's the name of our debut book coming in 2024. (laughs) Unwell, written by Silas D. and Anne Stu. That's right. 
<clears throat> so for some top liner backstory about this, it is going to centralize around a young girl named Jennifer Pan. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, Jennifer was born on June 17th, 1986, in Toronto to her two parents who were Vietnamese immigrants, and their names were Han, her father, and Bic, her mother. Jennifer also had a younger sibling, her brother Felix. Now, for just a little bit of backstory on this family, um, they immigrated years prior. I think it was 1979, Han came over, and he was a political refugee, as was Bic. And her parents married in Toronto, and then eventually, after they had their daughter, I think that was 1986, and then Felix was born in 1989, the two parents were kind of settled, right? And they started working in auto manufacturing and they worked incredibly hard, these people. They were determined to kind of carve out the life for themselves that they had dreamed of for them and their kids. So by 2004, the couple became very financially stable from working in the the manufacturing industry for so long and they were able to relocate their family to a nicer neighborhood, better home, nicer cars. The family was now kind of upper middle class living in the greater Toronto area. Now, this is not a new phenomenon, I would say, where this like comes into play, but there are many kids who grow up as the children of an immigrant parent, and there can often be what is described as a transfer of this incessant work ethic, or at least a demand for their children to be successful in all aspects of life. I, I feel like I've certainly heard stories and I've certainly read cases that are similar to this dynamic. But the dynamic of this family was that now that they had more money, they would be extremely strict with it because they were they had worked so hard for it and they were going to set extreme expectations for their children growing up. Excellence from a young age was the benchmark. It was the goal. It was non-negotiable. I I mean, even outside of like immigrant families, I've known kids who have grown up with parents with this mentality that you have got to be better than every single person around you or you have no worth to the family. I've seen that. Oh, totally. And there's so much pressure behind it that uh, to be that young is just, Mm -hmm. I don't blame We're talking from like five years old, like young, young, like children. Yeah. I mean, I do blame the parents. I don't blame them because they just want to keep at that elevated level for their children. They just want to keep mm-hmm. that, you know, the life keeps getting better and better for each generation of their family. But, oh, my God, so much pressure. Well, it, I think it comes from, like, their own trauma, too. I mean, it it is traumatic to be especially a political refugee and then to sort of have to make your way in a totally new country. And once you finally do become financially stable and you've worked hard to carve out a life for yourself here, there is inherent trauma that does transfer to your children in a way mm-hmm. that you, like, you're you're usually not going to be a lax parent. You've worked very hard. You want your children to work hard. And I, I was interesting because I was reading a lot about this case and parents and families who have experienced a similar mentality on Reddit last night. And 
it was kind of shocking to see how many kids were on there talking about a similar experience they had with their parents and just saying, you can't really understand what this kind of pressure is like as a child unless you've lived this experience. But many of them empathize with Jennifer in this case. Like they understand like what it's like to be the firstborn in an immigrant family Mm -hmm. living overseas and, you know, Canada or the U.S., And you have this massive weight on your shoulders from like three or four. So I'll keep going just a little bit since we'll we'll get through some of the exposition here. So Jennifer being the firstborn, she's kind of thrust from like a young age into a million different activities. It's like age four that I think she's taking multiple piano lessons a week. She's training to as like a young figure skater because there are already conversations about aspirations for the Olympics. She's also studying the flute. She's placed in her school band. And of course, the grades have got to be straight A's. There's no exceptions. And from the descriptions of, I think, a friend who later came forward just to speak to the family dynamic, even as she got older, got into high school and then out of high school, they often thought of her father, Han, as the real enforcement behind all of this. And the mother, Bic, was sort of the accomplice to the plan, right? Like, she's sort of there to support whatever he's dictating to the family of like, this is our standard. That's a rough road as a kid. Like that's, I I understand like there is no easy track there when it comes to especially a political refugee in another country, but the expectation of excellence like that surely, surely never ends in like happiness for that child who becomes an adult. Right? Totally. Well, they can never focus on their wins because it's like, you've Mm. always got to keep it You've got to keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. They can never just relish in childhood moments of joy and that's such a good way to put winning. it. Winning. That's so no, that's that's you're very right. Like there's no celebration of the success because that's the expectation. That's the, mm-hmm. the standard. So can you ever celebrate? Is there anything to celebrate? You know? The only thing that you're taught to focus on forever is your failures or incompetence. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that kind of sets the stage here for just what the family dynamic is with this girl growing up. So Han, he's incredibly strict with Jennifer. Of course, this extends beyond academia. It's with dating as well. Zero, zero chance that she is allowed to hang out with boys. Well, I guess like a lot of friends, let alone any boys or boyfriends, even by the time she reaches high school. Totally restricted. Can't attend school dances. Cannot go to parties. Like, can't go to theme parks with, like, no, no like, friend vacations. Like, nothing whatsoever outside of the confines of her academics. But then something starts to tilt a little bit with this girl. And this is not isolated to her in any way, shape, or form. But strict parents don't always yield good kids. I think they yield good liars. They yield good kids who... Kids who are good at putting up a front of perfection, but behind the scenes, they're sort of cutting the corners. She's not getting the grades that her parents think she is by the time she's in high school. And this is when it's about to hit the fan hard. By the time she's in high school, she's gotten so good at lying and understanding like how to navigate around the expectations of perfection from her parents. She is forging her report cards. I know. It's, it's the recipe for disaster. It's not going to go oh well. Oh, my God. <laughs> I knew people who did this in high school, too. Mm. I was going to say, I I don't even know where I would have begun to do that. Microsoft Paint, baby. 
Microsoft Paint. <laughs> I know. That's that's what people Damn. in high school were doing. I, there was a girl. Yeah. I can't name her. I should, but I can't. She was doing that and had been doing that, I think, since late middle school. Like, because you would get a tangible report card that you would have to bring home to your parents. She would scan it, go into Microsoft Paint, and then it was just generic, like Arial or like Times New Roman text on the report card. And she would just put like 90s for like all of her grades. And then she started offering it to other kids in our high school as a service. You could pay her like 50 bucks and she would do this to your report card. Oh my God. It's bad, dude. Because what's the end game? Like eventually, like they're going to be like, oh, my kid's a straight A student and like all of their AP classes. Like surely like we can start sending out the applications for the IVs and like they've got all these extracurriculars. And then when the IVs get like your real transcript, they're like, baby, you're not going to cut it with like four D's and an F. I'm more so thrown by the idea that we used to bring home physical report cards. Like I just mm. had a moment, a flashback of bringing one back. Yes, to the 1800s when we were in high school. Oh God, the 18, that's right. Uh, and that's right. I you don't you. <laughs> when did we switch over to um, digital report cards? Was that? I feel maybe that was the thing at towards the end of high school, at least in my school. Yeah, we would get automated phone calls home if like a student was late to class and then marked in the mm-hmm. computer system as late, <laughs> which is like mess. Cause there could be so many reasons that like somebody's like caught up with a teacher and then they get like a hall pass, but the teacher's already like marked at the system. So-and-so was late. And then the parent gets a call that says your child did not come to class. Something's it's wrong. Like a prison call. <laughs> it's yeah, it's not, it's <clears throat> whatever. Anyway. So this girl is starting to, get a little sneaky she's forging her own report cards her grades were not terrible like we're talking like 70s like it's pretty average but she's forging every single report card for just complete straight a's and she's being watched like a hawk while she's doing this like so she's gotten very very good at kind of like crafting these schemes and these plans behind the scenes so jennifer she's faking the report cards that's madness parents have no clue but nonetheless, of course, when it comes to college applications, I think she starts applying and she gets early admission to Ryerson University. Most likely, I think, from all of her extracurriculars at the time. Um, but eventually, or maybe her proficiency in music, I think, was like what started to, what, what got her early admission. But obviously, the grades had to back it up. But they're referencing her actual transcripts. So here's when things <laughs> go off. They get the lowdown on her grades she fails calculus her senior year and she alone gets a letter from ryerson and they decide that based on her their re-review of her transcripts and her recent failure of calculus they are rescinding her early admission (gasps) this is when the madness unfolds her parents don't know like so Rather than this, like, somehow getting out, she basically completely fabricates a lie to be like, nothing's wrong. I, yeah, I still have early admission to, to Ryerson. They've completely rescinded their offer. So she's still telling, like, making them believe, yeah, I'm, I'm going to college, like, in the fall. And she, instead of, like, going the dorm route, she's like, we should save money and I'm going to opt to commute to campus my first year and I'll just live at home. She completely fakes attending college rather than admit to the failure. So what she's doing, Sue, she's getting up in the morning. This is like, I mean, she's like at this point, age like 19, 20, 
because this actually goes on, believe it or not, for all four years of college. She no. fakes, she fakes four years of college. What she's doing, she's getting up in the morning, being like with her backpack, but she's doing the whole bit, getting in her car. She's driving to local cafes and just sitting there all day. So her parents think she's up at like college classes. She goes a step further, which I don't really understand how anybody could lie, like go this deep with the lie. Because surely I'm I'm like, they must like be trying to like pay tuition or something like there has to be like some paperwork that they they can't be this dumb like they must understand there's like paperwork and like financial aid and stuff that is involved turns out she had faked a bunch of scholarship letters so they think she's on a full ride to this school and she's in this cafe all day she's going eat as far as to buy secondhand textbooks (laughs) then she's watching youtube videos because she's in like um like a pharmacology program is what she told them. She got into the pharmacology department. She's watching like pharmacology, like 101 on YouTube and taking copious notes in a notebook. So when she comes home and her father Han is like, show me your notes, show me what you did today at school. She's like showing up a full notebook full of notes. So they're like, yeah, this is proof that she's in lecture. Like she's deep in this lie. It's going to get worse. (laughs) So the lie starts to thicken as like time is going on because I actually did not know this. I was like, well, okay, she just finished high school and she faked going to college. When she failed calculus and she didn't make up that credit, she never actually graduated high school. She never graduated high school. And when it came time for graduation, she like made up some lie where I think she told her parents that they they had a very large class or something and they were only allowing students to have like one ticket for family for graduation. And she thought it wasn't a big deal or something. So she said, I gave it to one of my friends. Like she made up some convoluted lie, but she's a good liar is the thing. So they believed it. And of course, like they already saw the letter about like her getting into college, like the early admissions. So they're, they're focused on college already at this point anyway. So the lie starts to thicken. She tells her parents that her commute is getting exhausting because she's up late, she's studying so hard for all these classes, all these exams. So she asked permission, you know, can I stay at one of my girlfriend's houses or like my girlfriend's dorm, maybe on the weeknights because it's a bit closer to campus, which makes sense to them. She is surely staying at her boyfriend's almost every night of the week. <laughs> she's not supposed to have a boyfriend. At this point, she's like 21, I think. Thoughts on that? I don't know. <laughs> how how we doing so far? <laughs> I don't want to jump the gun here and and jump to conclusions. Was there any abuse in her household? None that there. Well, it's this is an interesting conversation. And I was reading a lot about it on Reddit last night, specifically about this case, because many people do think that the way she was raised and the pressure that was put on her is abusive, at least emotionally abusive. But there's no evidence of sexual or physical abuse as far as I read. But I could be wrong. Okay. The only reason I ask is that to go to these extremes to it's lie extreme. It's extreme. is like she must have been motivated by some very, very serious fear. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure the fear tactics, or whether they're physical sociopathic. or emotional. <laughs> well, we'll get into some conversations with that because okay. I do think that the abuse that she may have experienced emotionally, even at like a a young age of like four or five, that can certainly stunt, I think, your emotional development, where suddenly Mm -hmm. if you're treated like a robot or that you're expected to perform 
neutrally and with perfection all the time. It's difficult for me to imagine that you would grow up as a fully realized, like, emotional human being. You know, like, you might shut that part of yourself off at a young age in order to perform. Right? Sure. I just think four years, especially when you're becoming an adult, you're dating, you're starting to kind of figure yourself out. Yes. There must have been some serious emotional trauma where she was like, if I do the wrong thing, I'm going to be just like killed. Like I'm going to be like, exiled done. from your family. Yeah. Too. I mean, yeah. like that that's a very real threat. Of course, her parents would like toss her out. But it's I also I mean, we're not psychologists or psychiatrists or anything, but from the outside looking in, I almost started to wonder because the lie gets so thick. I'm like. Maybe this isn't, maybe this is beyond like the fear of failure and like expectations from her family. She might be, she might have a compulsion where like Mm -hmm. the lying is part of what she enjoys because Mm -hmm. she, she starts to thicken this plot and this scheme. I would say beyond the necessity of like, I'm going to college, you know, like she's starting to bake in parts of this that are not necessary. So I'm like, I think she might enjoy. That she's like deceiving her parents. It's it's a, like a subconscious way of her getting back at them for how they've controlled her for so long. She's actually the one pulling the strings this time. That's yeah, how, that's my read on it. It's like that phrase I know I've used on the podcast before, but when people start to mentally kind of unravel, like believing their own myth, like just mm-hmm. making it more and more of a thing. Putting that in my notes right now because that's going to go on the next merch drop. <laughs> believing your own myth. I believe my own myth. <laughs> and, and sometimes you, know you I gotta do. you gotta honey sometimes <laughs> sometimes you gotta believe your own myth <laughs> it's the it's the only way to get you through like the week mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. Mm. do you want to hear about the boyfriend yes i mean he's certainly not a good guy for her in this picture but she is staying at the boyfriend's like i said almost every night of the week his name is daniel wong and he's actually a guy that she had met back in high school they knew each other a while ago So they get together, they connect. At this point, I think he had either dropped out of college or he was kicked out because his grades were too low. But he's he's basically just a a, like a weed dealer locally, and he just works at a pizza place part time. Then this goddamn lie starts to go even further um, because she can't help herself. She continues to craft this false image of her life. She tells her parents that she has picked up a volunteer job through her program in pharmacology, (laughs) where she is now going to be volunteering at this hospital pretty regularly to help sick children. Not at all. Not She's going to be with Daniel Wong. But this is when she starts to slip. Her lie gets a little sloppy. Her parents are getting a little suspicious of her because she supposedly has this huge, like, she's juggling this massive volunteer job where she's working like nights at this hospital tending to sick children, but she's also going to all these exams. She's up late studying so hard that she has to be at her girlfriend's house staying over close to campus like five nights a week. They're like, she must be like killing herself over this. Like she's working so hard. But what's odd about the volunteer thing with the hospital, they're like, well, she doesn't really have like a, a, like a uniform. Like we've never seen her in like scrubs or anything, but she's not like a nurse or a pharmacist yet. She's just a volunteer. So maybe that's normal, but Surely she'd have some kind of like identification, like a like a hospital badge, like an ID badge. She doesn't have anything, but she's supposedly always going to this hospital. So I think what happens is her 
either her mother or both parents are so suspicious, they one day try to follow her to the hospital to, like, see if she, like, goes there. And I think she knows. She, like, catches them following her. So when she perks her car, she basically runs into the hospital and they try to, like, run after her. She's, like, hiding out in the emergency room, like, waiting them out. So I think what happens is they basically catch her in the act. (laughs) And they're like, you are actively deceiving us. This hospital job's not real. She comes completely clean. No hospital job. Oh, I'm not in college. I never got in. This is four years. This is she like she's supposed to be at graduation. <laughs> in oh, fact, I think my God. I think they thought she had already graduated because I think she used the same lie again about graduation. She was like, the class is too big, so they're limiting how many tickets <laughs> we can give out. So they like they already think she's graduated and they think she's at like a I guess an internship. She's like, um, I don't have a hospital job. Uh, I'm dating this guy named Daniel Wong. Oops, like wasn't supposed to date anybody. Also, I never went to college. Oh, also, I never finished high school. She tells all of this to her parents. And they're like, like their heads are about to roll off the back of their neck. They're so upset. Han and Bic, the parents go ballistic. They almost threw her. Han wanted to throw her out on the street. He said, get the, like, get the hell out of my house. He's so angry. I think Bic stepped in, the mother, and they try to they try to figure out how they're going to get her back on track. What is the immediate plan of action now that they have all of this information because she hasn't even finished high school? They're like, you're first going back to finish, like get your GED. You're going to finish high school. And then you are reapplying when, once you finish your final semester there to college. You're going to college. So effectively, that's what Jennifer does. She re-enrolls in like a high school completion program and her parents have got her under like lock and key. Like if she thought that was strict before, now that they know that she is a world, world renowned liar in the sense that they're like, we're going to track your mileage. They make her get a job as a piano instructor to help bring in extra money. They're tracking her mileage and like watching her every move. They took away her computer she was only allowed to use it for like schoolwork and it, they had to watch her. I think they took away her cell phone for a little bit. So here's what Jennifer does. Suddenly, she is forbidden completely from like all of the things she knew before while she was under this lie, specifically the boyfriend Daniel Wong. But nonetheless, the two do keep in contact in secret because restricted kids become great liars. So she's continuing. She's 24 years old. Daniel, at this point, is kind of over her. He's less interested in her because she's a he lives on his own. And she's effectively an adult who's, like, under lock and key with her parents. So he's like, I just don't know if I want to keep doing this thing with you, like, dealing with every, all the restrictions your parents have put on us. So he leaves her. And that's when everything unravels even further. Because she is psychologically connected to Daniel, I think, in a way, where he represents an escape route from the hell that has been life with her parents. So when he breaks it off and he starts dating another girl, I think this is when the pathological lying takes on a new form. She starts to make these fake claims and like fake scenarios where she's basically fabricating pictures and texts saying, my house is broken into. I was like assaulted by a group of men and it was orchestrated by your new girlfriend. She like mails a bullet 
to herself and says it was like like signs it from his new girlfriend. Like she's trying to concoct this crazy cockamamie. It's a cockamamie plot to like frame his new girlfriend as like an attacker against her. Oh no. How's that sitting with you? Because I, I think this she's is losing. just all recipe for disaster. I'm still shocked that the parents were like, let's continue to do this thing that we know doesn't work. <laughs> I don't I don't think they knew of any other way. I think parent this is controversial to say. I think yeah. parents do the best they can with the limitations of their own mental health issues and their own sort of psychological sicknesses. I really speak on it. I I no I I think it's a it's a way to heal I think too if you're a kid who grew up under challenging family circumstances it's a different way to frame your experience with your parents it doesn't make it right what happened mm-hmm. to you whatever it was but there are certainly parents out there who suffer from mental illness in varying forms I mean you can be functional and you can suffer from personality defects or you can be highly non-functional and dangerous as a parent but I think it comes from their own sort of sickness and trauma I think that's the root of what was happening here, but it does not make it right what they did to her. That's my only, mm-hmm. my only spiel. <laughs> you go speak on it, honey. <laughs> speak on it. Well, no, I agree with you, but I also think with time, you have to be smart and you have to look at this and go, okay, she's been doing this for six years since mm-hmm. high school and beyond. It's not working for us to be super strict and restrict her. Why don't we just let her do her thing and see how she lands and we'll be good parents and pick her back up when like at least I I mean, I'm not a parent and I know that's probably there's creepers that are listening that her parents are like, that's not how it works. But (laughs) that is just crazy to me to think let's just restrict her even more and hope we get a different outcome. Well, they really think that there's like no she can't get out from under them is the thing they're like. They think their restriction on her is so like tight that they're like, we definitely know every single moment of like her day, what she's doing. But again, she's such a great liar and she's like so good at sneaking around that she can figure out a way to basically win back a boyfriend while she's effectively on house arrest. So this is when the desperation comes into play. I know that was a ton of exposition on like the lead up, but. I think it's very necessary to give that kind of backstory before I'm going to talk about what happens on this one night in 2010. So Jennifer was trapped in this scenario. She's looking for that escapism. She has this intensifying pressure from the parents. She concocted something deeply sinister because she's basically conned Daniel Wong back into her life by framing the ex-girlfriend. So he's kind of back and like reconnected with her now. She was introduced to this guy in 2010. His name was Andrew Montemayor. He introduced her to another guy named Ricardo Duncan. Together, they were considered to run in kind of a rough crowd, and there were rumors that Andrew had a pretty firm past with violence and that he had done some stuff. Jennifer Pan met Ricardo and offered him, allegedly, $1,500 to kill her father in a parking lot. Things are heating up, baby. They're about to heat up. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay, I'm gripping my chair. I was like, you need to grab something because the ass is not going to help at this point. Yeah, yeah. Now, this um, this is a little murky because I think there's some denial here about like what money was paid to who. Like, I think it's confirmed 
she gave somebody, I think this Ricardo character, $200 or something, but he later said this was for something else. Like, there's no, like, text proof, I guess, or, like, written proof that, like, she was conspiring at this point to kill her parents. But at this point, Jennifer Daniel Wong, they're talking again, they're back together, and she again expresses this interest in not only killing the father, killing both parents, mother and father dead, whole family. Now, they do some quick math here between her and Daniel, because now Daniel's looped into the conspiracy to, like, take the family out. I think they were able to figure out from, like, their company life insurance policies and whatever private insurance they had that if the family was murdered, both parents are dead, she's next of kin to inherit close to $500,000. And they think, if we kill them, we can live off that together, and I'll be free. I'll be free of this prison I've lived in. So dark what's going down here to be so hateful and disconnected to your parents that you're plotting to kill them can you actually this would be a good time do you want to look at that picture that first picture of her with like all of this additional context well i just i had just gone back because i wanted to sorry for anybody who's curious about where these pictures are i'm posting all of them in our reddit thread so that's where Stu and i are having our teeth bill I want to say something, but I don't want to spoil it. So I'm going to keep looking at the first picture. Um, okay. But Should I, I had just gone back. Yeah, <laughs> keep going. Okay. Okay. I'll keep going. Then we can, we can chat about like what you're seeing. Um, yeah. So they've got this inheritance plan. They want the 500K. It's getting hella dark. Daniel somehow is able to get her in contact with now someone else because the whole Ricardo like $1,500 thing falls through. He gets her in contact with this guy who's allegedly known for hits. He does them for 20K. He's willing to give her a friends and family discount for $10,000 to kill both parents, which seemed shockingly low, but I'm also not typically in the market to kill anybody. So I don't know what the price point for that usually is, but $10,000 seems like not enough to kill somebody for somebody else. Yeah? Definitely not. What if you get caught and you've got lawyer's fees? That's Lawyer's fees? Your attorney fees, baby. Look. Come on now. Well, you got to get out of town. You got to get like a new disguise. You got to have money for quality ends. That That adds up, honey. Well, does it? (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the videos I saw last night when I was going through our old videos. It was me in a quality in shower using the quality in soap. And I picked it up and I threw it at the wall or the curtain and it stuck flat. Didn't move. Did not if move. you and I ever go on a Creep Time Live tour of any kind, you better believe that we're staying in a quality inn. <laughs> just for like old times sake? Just for the giggles, yeah. <laughs> I can't do it, honey. I can't. I know. I was like, my, my, we'll get one for the gag and maybe take a picture in there and then we'll go to an yeah, Airbnb and then we'll or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> go, yeah. Let's get a Verbo. <clears throat> let's go to the Ritz. The Ritz, honey. And Omaha. I'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> so Jennifer, she's now in touch with a, an actual hitman. His name is, I think it's Lenford, or maybe it was Ledford. Maybe I spelled it wrong. Lenford Crawford. He immediately gives her a burner phone. Like he he knows how what's going on and like how to do this. Gets her a burner phone because he knows that she's under lock and key and her parents are watching her every move on her actual phone. So he's keeping in contact with her 
so that they don't leave a trail here and they can actually coordinate on this. He gets her in touch with another guy who's going to be involved known as Sniper Cardi and this other guy named David who's also going to be involved because they've got like a whole crew here. Like there's going to be a getaway guy in a car. There's going to be like people who go in who actually do the deed. Like this is happening. She's going to kill her parents. So what happens the night of? It is the evening of November 8th, 2010. And it's like getting close to bedtime. Her father had been home all night. Her mom, I think it was a Monday night because her mom had this routine where she would go line dancing with her girlfriends on Monday nights, like take lessons or maybe do it out in public somewhere. So she comes back. Jennifer is home, as are her parents. I don't think her brother was home at this point. He definitely wasn't. And before going to bed, she kind of, you know, sneaks downstairs and then like says goodnight. But before she goes back up, she quietly unlocks the front door. Then makes her way back upstairs. She used her burner phone to make a couple of calls, one of which was to David. And she says the plan is a go. And then she goes to the family study and she flicks the lights on and off at 10.02. This is the signal to people outside. The plan is a go. David and two other men enter through the front door with their guns, and they made their way quietly through the house. Now, I believe they first grab the father, and they drag him downstairs at gunpoint, and then the mother, Vic. But now, this plan, it has to be elaborate, because they have to stage it as a break-in, effectively. Um, because Jennifer is going to be involved. So it look it has to look like an attack on the whole family. So they grab Jennifer and then they are trying to like instruct her. They're like, bring us all the money. Like, get us all the money in your house. Like, they're staging it as a robbery in front of the parents, even though they're going to kill the parents because they want any of the loose cash in the house. And then they're also getting the cut of what Jennifer, or they're getting what Jennifer had paid out. The other guys are going to get a cut of it. So she gets anything from, like, the safe. They want money from the nightstands. And she's, like, completely in on all of this, obviously. And the parents were, like, begging the men. They were like, please, please don't hurt our daughter. They then tie Jennifer's hands behind her back, apparently, in the bedroom using a shoelace. And I think they tie her upper arm to, like, the bed banister as well. And they move back downstairs where they shoot Han and they shoot Vic at point-blank range. It was in this moment that the next phase of the plan has to go into play. Jennifer's 911 call, which I certainly do have. <gasps> mm-hmm. Oh, how we, how we doing so far? <laughs> how have we not said the word sinister yet? This is the I had it in my notes and I sinister. crossed it out. I, I put a little this like, is the strike definition. It. No, we're getting it on this. I'm sorry. I'm getting it on this. It's crazy. It's this is insane. Diabolical. I'm gonna throw that word out there. Diabolical. Truly, it's sociopathic. When I was reading, I kept thinking I was like, I think this girl could be a sociopath. Like I, because I, yeah. I want to get. Let me play the 911 call so I can get your opinion on this because people are very conflicted on this. Some people are like, oh, she's like, she reads like a book. Like it's like clear because she has all these tells because she does do that thing that we kind of saw in the Tamla Horsford case where it's like she's selling through a story without being mm. prompted like she's like <laughs> what would you say last time doth thou doth speak too much what'd you say 
Thou doth protest too much. Doth protest too much. That's kind of what's going down Mm -hmm. here. But then there are other people who were like, no, she's she's selling. Like she's like fully leaning into the the act, right? So let me pull this up so I can play it. Yeah. Are you gagged that I have this? I am gagged. Yeah. This is really okay. So again, just before I play it, I'm gonna give some context. At this point. The men have left the house because what's already happened is they've already kind of faux tied Jennifer up in the bedroom, but she has somehow managed to like wiggle her cell phone out of her pocket so she can call 911. They've already shot the parents downstairs. What Jennifer does not anticipate, because at this point the parents are supposed to be dead and she's supposed to be calling 911 to be like, we just had a break in. I've been, I'm tied up upstairs. They took my parents. I don't know what's going on. Her father is not dead. They didn't finish the job. And she realizes that in real time in the background of this call because she's, you're going to hear her on the phone talking to 911. And then in the background, she starts hearing her father screaming from downstairs for help, even though she knows the guys have already left. Like the job is supposed to be done. So she's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, like loose end. So here we go. It's only 50 seconds. So I'll I'll cut it there because that's the meat of it where she realizes in real time my dad's alive. Initial reaction to that. How do you feel? Uh, I <laughs> This is sinister. Like this is sinister. Bad. A psychologist could do a whole breakdown on this because imagine here's the here's the deal. Mm. I don't care how evil and sociopathic and effed up you are. Imagine in that moment, you've already decided in your mind, I'm committing to the idea I'm killing my parents. Yes. There's got to be that switch in you, even just for a brief moment of the inner child going, oh, my God, my dad's hurt. Like a, a, a want or need in your soul to be like, instant, I want to Like instant my regret dad. kind of thing? Like, Yeah. Yeah. Or like yeah. just your instinct. Like that's your parent. Like, like there's a tie there to hear your dad cry who's taken care of you your entire life. Like there's got to be one little millisecond, even if she's pure evil, one Mm -hmm. millisecond where she's like, (gasps) like, oh my God, my dad's actually still alive. And this hasn't gone through. And like, what should I do? Even if it's a millisecond and it goes away. I'm very fascinated by your reaction to that. I'm very, by what you're saying, because a lot of people would say she's just selling hard. She feels nothing. So it's interesting if, if you're getting that she is kind of having a breaking point where she's like, what have I done? You know? Because that's partially what she's selling. 
well, the remorse. He- here's here's the reason why I say that, and and maybe I'm the fool here, but that moment where she says, "Dad, I'm Dad, I'm coming," or she said something like that. She was like, "Dad." Mm-hmm. And then she says to the 911 operator, my dad's hurt or like, that's my dad in the background screaming or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like there had to have been just one, even if it was for a second, I get that she's pure evil and she's selling, but mm-hmm. just a millisecond that she was like, oh my God, like he's alive. That's and the great debate about this case. Yeah. Oh people will, God. people talk through this moment time and time again. Is she really feeling instant remorse? Is she feeling remorse that the plan didn't go as planned? Or is she in damage control mode? I have to sell this hard. I am the victim. I have to sell this hard. We will actually never know. But I'm going to keep going because Mm -hmm. something actually switches in her favor here. So here's where things are at. We have this frantic 911 call. Bick, the mother, shot in the head. She is dead in the home. And I know this is graphic, but if you do... Scroll to the second picture, which you've probably seen. That is the crime scene. Warning to anybody who is going to see this on our Reddit thread. That's the crime scene. She is covered. But that is how the living room looked. So basically her father, he was shot. But I think it it had to have been like an adrenaline rush or something. Because he's like severely wounded. He rushed out of the house. And he's like screaming in the street, gushing blood. And this is like middle of the night. A neighbor sees him. And... They call 911. He is rushed to the hospital. He is in such critical condition. He has to be put into an induced coma. So this is really interesting because the loose end is now tied off in a way. He's completely out of commission for any sort of information about what happened in the house. It's all Jennifer. The mother is dead. So at first, Jennifer is brought into the station for interrogation because immediately they're treating this super sensitively because the story looks god awful it's horrific like this young girl who's never seemingly never done anything bad in her life her family home is broken into and she's tied up and her parents are killed shot dead or i guess her father's in a coma at this point like they think oh my god how is she going to emotionally survive this but we have to get information about who would have done this, like what is the motive, like were they just robbers, was it randomized, etc. And what's crazy is there is the entire tape of her interrogation, all four hours of it, online. It's on YouTube. In fact, I linked it in the Reddit thread. Oh, that's a oh, that's a video. I didn't even realize. Yeah, it's a it's a still from the video, but there's a link that's included at the bottom. So if you wanted to watch snippets from the interrogation, I think that's she has three full interrogation periods um, before things change. But her first one, fascinating. They treat it super sensitively because not a single person suspects her. Why would they? Home invasion, innocent family. That's the story. So father's in the coma. The loose end is tied off. So they're asking her all these questions, trying to piece together, you know, like, what what do you remember? Like, what, what, what is, like, this story? But then while they're kind of combing through the evidence here, the first thing that sticks out to them as odd is the 911 call. Because she said on the call and then said in her interrogation, I was tied to the bed, hands behind my back, um, arm to, like, the bed frame, to the banister. But she also called 911 even though her wrists were allegedly tied behind her back. So something seems off with the story. So you can watch this in the interrogation. 
they they go, put your hands behind your back. Cross them just the way they were tied. What else is tied? Your arm. They like immobilize her. And it's like, where's your phone? Your phone's in your back pocket. Show us how you called 911. And she's like doing the maneuver like in the room. And there's it's crazy there is footage of this. Like it's so interesting to see her like problem solving in real time. Like how do I mm-hmm. tell the story? So basically what she tells them is that she was able to get her phone out of her back pocket um, and like switch it over to her side hip while in the bed. And she called 911 that way. And they were like, you spoke to 911 with the phone down at your hip. She's like, yes, sir. And they're like, how did you hear it? And she goes, I, I turned the volume up on max. They're like, why do you sound on the call? Like the phone is pressed to your, to your ear and your mouth. And she's like, I, I was curled up. Like she's just rapid fire improving every excuse to cover her ass. It's nuts. So the reenactment happens. They're still pretty unsure. But basically, from that moment on, she is kind of circling in like their internal conversations about like something seems maybe off with the daughter. So they kind of keep eyes on her from that moment all the way until I think November 15th. This is when she attends her mother's funeral, which the father could not attend based on his injuries. And in fact, I don't think he woke up from the coma until November 9th or 10th, but he is so critically injured, he can't attend. It's just her and the brother and the family. While they're watching her, investigators at this funeral, she does not cry at any point, which they found odd. People grieve in very different ways, especially when something gravely traumatic happens, but they took this as a jump-off point where they're like, we need to re-examine the story to really flesh out and understand this robbery scenario because this girl does not look the way we expected. From a search, it looked like these guys had left money in the house. They didn't take jewelry. They didn't take the Lexus in the driveway, even though the keys were like right on the table. So the investigators are like, what kind of robbery was this? Where like they left cash that was out in the open and they didn't take valuables. Like they didn't rob them, it seems like. But the smoking gun, no forced entry. Mm. It appeared as if the door was mysteriously unlocked for some reason. Something that seemed odd to investigators because how would these intruders, even if it was premeditated, know to go to this house at this time and know for sure that that door was going to be unlocked unless they had a heads up? Our target, Jennifer, seemingly the only witness who was left without a scratch from the intruders. Why would she have motive to kill her parents? They sniff it. They sniff it. They know what's up. Mm. So then we get our home run for the investigation. Han, the father, wakes up from his coma and he remembers every single thing about that night. He starts claiming to police that his daughter wasn't tied up when he saw her. She was walking around the house with these intruders and she was talking to them as if they were friends before Han was shot. Jennifer had never anticipated that her dad would survive the gunshot, so she did not consider the possibility that he would be a liability as a witness because she's assuming, oh, he's going to be killed tonight, so it's fine if I'm walking around the house and coordinating with the hitmen about like, okay, you're going to tie me up upstairs. Like she's 
mapping out the story oh, and the plot my God. in front of the father. So he's bearing witness to all of this <gasps> in like complete disbelief that his daughter's there like you're about to die kind of thing. She had no anticipation he would survive a damn gunshot to the head. <laughs> so, okay. I... I know, I know. I'm going to let you keep going. I'm going to let you keep going. <laughs> she She's brought in and she's interrogated for a third time. This is her third and final interrogation. Nine hours plus they keep her in because they've got some real dirt on her. And she's like not budging. Again, falling deeper and deeper into the lie. But at this point, police are for sure, for sure onto her. They just need concrete proof or a confession. Han's testimony is huge, but they need to know that she did this. At the nine-hour mark, and this is on camera, she seemingly breaks down and comes clean, but it's a different story. She, she is a pathological liar. She claims she hired the hitmen to come and kill her because she was depressed from living that way with her parents, and they got confused and killed her parents, or tried to kill both her parents, killed the mother, couldn't get the father. But this is enough for them to know that in either scenario, you orchestrated this horror, you are a liar, and you most definitely attempted to kill your parents. Mm -hmm. She's caught. She's done. Oh, it just hit me like a ton of bricks now thinking back to her dad screaming on that call because you know his screams were, oh my God, you tried to kill me. It's horror. It's horror. It's yeah. absolute horror. You tried to kill me. Like, That's why there was he ran out of the scream. house. He ran to a neighbor, not even to his daughter upstairs because she's the culprit. She's My his heart killer. is beating so fast right now. I could hear his scream in that call. Like I could hear it in my head. And he's literally- Should I play it again? I need you to play it again. <laughs> Me because putting was, salt in the wound. I'm sorry. There was something when he was screaming that like, and I think I was maybe misguiding it with like Jennifer thinking like, oh my God, my dad might still be alive. It, there was something mm. about his scream that just scared the crap out of me. And it's, it's that it's, it's that horrifying. he knows, he knows that she just tried to have him killed and he's yes. like screaming. She was, I mean, theoretically, if he had never woken up from that coma, she could have gotten away with this. Yeah. Like, she had all the... Co I mean, nobody was suspecting her, and there really wasn't a trail outside of the weird, like, the discrepancies with, like, the no-forced entry, and, like, they didn't take all the jewelry. But all of those things, I mean, robberies happen in different ways. He is the smoking gun, but I'm going to replay his screams mm -hmm. just because he brought it up. Again, disturbing. I know, I, I know. That's going to make me tear. I'm actually tearing right now. There's there's a lot, a lot going on in that recording. But he, it's so interesting to like, that you just reframed it for me that way. Because he theoretically would like, if he was so hurt and scared or thought his daughter might be hurt, he would run to her first. Yeah. Right? Because they were like begging with these intruders, like, please don't hurt our daughter. But they had clearly seen that she was in on this. She knew them. So he's running out of the house because she's a threat. That is, this whole story is so dark and nuts. Yeah. It's so and, damn tragic. 
And you know, I'm thinking too now hearing it that second time, I feel like he's screaming to get the attention of whoever is on the 911 line. Like he might, yeah, like he might not survive. Like, yeah. By the time police even get there. But also, I yeah. mean, he, it's the horror too of him sitting like on the floor in his injuries, looking face to face with his wife, eyes open with yep. a bullet hole through her head. Like, I mean, this is unimaginable horror. So police, they take all of that into account. And of course, at this point, Jennifer is completely caught. They scour whatever they can of her phone. And although I don't think they ever, they were ever able to find that burner phone and like the proper messages from it, like that was covered pretty well. They do know it existed, but they can make their own connections pretty quick. And they are able to track down every single guy who was involved in this. Everybody is arrested and they are heading to trial in 2014. So this trial... I'll go over it pretty quick, even though the trial itself was very lengthy. It's like there's tons of evidence and like there was so much planning around this, like the transaction taking place, multiple attempted transactions. And then Jennifer is on the stand, takes the stand for seven days straight. It is a 10-month trial. I think Han even gets on the stand too to testify against his daughter. And interestingly, the defense takes this approach here where they try to justify what she was doing almost in a way of um, self-defense from like the deep emotional and familial abuse that she was experiencing for her entire life. And they're chalking this up to, this is self-defense, but it's also a psychotic break that she was pushed into. But it's a pretty weak argument and it never lands with the jury. So eventually, all involved, Jennifer included, are sentenced to life in prison. Han does recover but he would end up having lifelong injuries that do prevent him from ever being able to return to work. And his son would end up filing a joint court order with the father against Jennifer so that even though she's in prison for life, she has zero possibility to ever contact them again. She can never figure out where they are, where they moved to, how to get in touch with them. And it is, I think it's described that her brother Felix, I mean, you can imagine the absolute trauma of this because really he lost both his mother, I think, and his sister in this. You could never mm-hmm. forgive somebody for doing something like that. He ends up effectively leaving. I think, I think he moved to the East Coast of the United States. He like left the country and just wanted to start completely new and just seek some peace and resolution in his life after losing his mother at the hands of his sister. Han, I believe, they describe him now as sort of a vacant version of his former self. I mean, he does not work. He lives with severe anxiety, sleep issues he's described publicly. And this took place more than 10 years ago at this point, or just about 10 years ago. And he's completely devastated by it, trapped by it. He rarely talks Mm -hmm. to the public about the actual ordeal, but he has made one public mention of Jennifer and says that, I'll paraphrase it, but he talked about his hopes for her. And he hopes that one day, wherever she is, because he'll never be in contact with her again, he hopes that she will come to realize the horror of what she actually did and that she will find a way to be a decent person, but she will never be a part of that family. As of today, Jennifer Pan remains in the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Ontario. And as recent as May 2023, she has tried to appeal her sentencing on what she argued was a misguide from the judge back in the 2014 case, uh, the 2014 trial, rather, 
where the judge had basically tried to sway the jury or confuse the jury by saying, you have to choose between these two different scenarios of guilt. She either murdered her parents this way or this way, which her attorneys now are arguing that was basically an interception to like misguide or confuse a jury. So her case should be reevaluated or like the trial has to be thrown out. It's, I don't think that appeal is going anywhere because this was back in May and thus far I haven't found anything else online about it, but I have no idea what else is in store for Jennifer. That is the case of the girl who found her solution. I'm going to take a sip. (laughs) I got to say, out of all the 911 calls that we have covered on this podcast, that is like in my top three most harrowing for me. It's There's a full narrative to it. It's it's so rare, I feel like, where we listen to 911 calls on this podcast with multiple people, too. Yeah. It's crazy. It's it's crazy that exists. Like, that exact moment exists on record. I don't know. I, I'm also just thinking about the kids who kill episode in this moment because I know yes. she wasn't a child when she did this, but mm-hmm. to me, her track record of just being a pathological liar, it feels very like she just was like a bad apple from the get go. I don't know how you can commit yourself to doing something so like evil and diabolical like wanting to put a hit on your own parents like at least if you hate them Mm -hmm. that much this is so dark but like you're not gonna do it your damn self that you're that you're gonna hire a hitman i get i don't i mean i can't really figure out or like pretend to justify or understand like what her reasoning behind it was but i do think whatever emotional abuse or control she received from her parents from the age of three or four whenever they started doing all of this to her i don't think that it warranted this that's not what i'm saying but i certainly think it shaped the brain of someone who grew up to stifle all emotion and connection to their parents like i don't think she was able Mm -hmm. to actually bond with her family in the same way that other people do yeah i mean i i i believe that but also she had a brother that turned out fine he did he did i mean well we don't know the inner workings of the dynamic i'm not here to like justify whatever was no 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 well and i gotta say it's different for daughters i i will say i feel like the the dynamic of the daughter the dynamic of the firstborn the firstborn to an immigrant family i mean there were a lot of complexities to this and i will take I will take the the note from many of the people who have talked about this on Reddit to say, of course, you cannot justify murder. But mm-hmm. they've said, if you have not lived this very specific experience, specifically to people of, I, there's a whole Reddit thread that talks about, they have talked about this specific family trope of having the overbearing parent who has tried to force you into being becoming the perfect version of themselves. Mm-hmm. You don't understand what that trauma is like, what that pressure is mm-hmm. like. And I truthfully could not. I couldn't, but I don't know that I can also understand how it can justify this. Yeah. Well, she made a fatal error, which was when she did finally turn 18 and could be her own adult in person. Mm -hmm. She didn't rebel and, you know, break out and do her own thing, which would have been painful for her. 
to live with the shame of that, but she would have probably turned out to be all right. She just kept leaning into the constraints of the shame and the guilt and it just I wonder why blew that is. up eventually. Like what I, is the thinking behind that of like I have to it's easier for me to facilitate the lie than to break break clean. You know, it's easier for me to have my parents killed than to run away. Like what is the well I guess the money was part of like the incentive, mm-hmm. the inheritance. I guess the incentive was also freedom in some really like awful way in her mind she thought that she might be free of having to appease them and you know seem like she had it all together but the thing that still strikes me as odd is like they knew she didn't have it together (laughs) at that point they were like like at that point she really should have been like okay bye like i'm doing my own thing the jig is up like yeah she just kept digging herself a deeper hole i wonder that's interesting too to think about like why did she not why did she not leave? But it could also be, I kind of liken it in the same way to sometimes domestic abuse in a way where like mm-hmm. you feel like you can't leave because even though the way of life that you've been trapped into is oppressive, it's the only way of life that you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the only, she grew up lying to her parents, but still living under like the pressure of their, you know, their thumb. So maybe even though the jig is up, technically, it's the only version of her life she knows and the only way in her mind to get rid of that is to get rid of the parents. And also, I also will say, I know we're putting a ton of blame on her, and she absolutely is to blame. There are other people involved here who helped conspire to do this with her. Her boyfriend, Daniel Wong, was really the one who made all of these connections and introductions for her to get the ball rolling. And these men, these men who went in to kill the parents of not only this girl, but also Felix, this brother, who could not have ever seen this coming. The horror of that. It also, for me, I wonder, I'm like, are there hitmen in the world that they get an order like this? And they're like, I'm not doing that one. I don't care how good the money is. From watching Killing Eve? No. They'll do okay. anything. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> because Killing Eve <laughs> is the benchmark for all international yeah. hits and how that process goes. Do you watch Killing Eve? I did. And I loved it. I, I love it show. Oh. It really romanticized hits. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Did you like the ending of it? We can't spoil it, but did you? How'd you feel about the ending? Were you upset? I'm now forgetting what the ending is. Maybe I can, I can whisper it without like saying. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just forgetting how. I'll we'll go. We'll we'll take this off the podcast and text about it. But I'm <laughs> forgetting it off how air. <laughs> that happens. But yeah, I just love that show. I thought it was brilliant. Maybe this will remind you. Jolly good. Jolly good. No. Wait, do it again? Do your little thing you just did? Mm. Jolly good. Oh, yes. <laughs> Wait, do it again. Try it. I can't do it. You know a straight man taught me how to do this? I told you Stop. that. Yeah, my friend Kent taught me how to do it in college. He was like, can I show you something? And I was like, yeah. And he goes. And I was like. And you said. I was like, what's that tongue been up to? What was that? <laughs> I was like, what are, you, what are you up to there? <laughs> you got so much dexterity in that mouth. That's a sign. We have to cut it. That's a sign. That's it. <laughs> we can't go from the murder of Paris to talking about We Kent's can't. We can't. <laughs> tongue dexterity. Not but someone named Kent. Not Kent, baby. Um, 
Any last thoughts on that case? I know this was a wild one, but I think that, I mean, I was so lucky I found that 911 call because I, I really wanted like a piece of like audio evidence to kind of sink this one. And I feel like that does such a good job. I mean, this was a wild ride of a case. And I just hope that her dad and her brother can have as peaceful of lives as possible. And I hope that she has a serious come to Jesus with herself in that prison and has some sort of growth out of whatever the hell that was for her. Because that's that behavior, I don't think, just like leaves your body once you've been doing it that long. Like, I Mm -hmm. seriously hope she got some help. You know, there's a lot of people who liken this in the same way of um, the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case. Because that is also sort of an example, not, although not apples to apples, of a parent who is, of course, extremely abusive and oppressive to their child. And this girl is secret. Again, it breeds a liar, a good liar, because Gypsy was a mm-hmm. great liar. And she had connected with somebody and found a way. I watched the whole act, like the whole show. I loved it. She found a way to find a guy who would kill her mother. And she's being released this December. And a lot of people yeah. are... So- Gypsy Rose Blanchard? Oh, yeah. She only served, um, I think it was seven years. I don't know for sure, but she's not the one who did the killing. The boyfriend did, but she was in the bathroom covering her ears while her mother was being stabbed in the bedroom. And she's getting out, and a lot of people are 100% on her side. Dee Dee Blanchard is the villain in that story. So people kind of compare this scenario to that case in the same way. Yeah. Listen, I, 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 I'm not fully on the side of like, you can never do, listen, I don't think murder is ever okay in those instances, but mm-hmm. I understand how people paint that as like a self-defense thing. Like her mother was physically, emotionally abusing her. This, and, and I, maybe I would just need a little bit more context on like how the parents treated her day in and day out, but this doesn't mm-hmm. sound like she was being, you know, like tortured in her home like it sounds like she she kind of did this to herself a little bit we may never know creepers i need you to sound off baby are you on solace's side or Stu's side i know i'm like (laughs) (laughs) i feel like i went in way too hard no no i think listen devil's advocate is what this case needs because this is a case that needs conversation because it's a it's it's like murky, which we don't always cover cases like that that are like, ooh, I mean, this is horrible and terrible, but whose side are we on? Because there mm-hmm. undoubtedly there was abuse going on here, whichever way you slice it. But yeah, I don't know that we can ever concretely say that this justifies as like this is justified as self-defense. You know, I don't think that this is that scenario. Maybe we don't have all the details. And we Never will, but we'll have that 911 call and that will haunt me. I hope that you're able to sleep tonight. I hope that that doesn't like (laughs) mess you up too, too bad. I is it, I know it's helpful and like interesting when I play those, but do those like rock your world hard? Like, are you able to sleep after that or is it like rough? I will sleep like a babe. I will (laughs) fall asleep. I will wake up tomorrow morning and I'll think about it. Oh no. It's like your eyes shoot open is the first thing that comes to your yeah. comes to your head. Yeah. Do you think that was like a scarier call than the Henry McCabe one from the 
Missing 411. That was the one where he's the animal in the <gasps> oh, background. God. That one is like gory and horrific to me in that way. Like I feel like I'm watching or listening in that case to a horror movie. Yeah. But with this it's like one, a snuff tape. It's like someone's final yes. moments. Yes. But with this one, I have context. And that's more horrific for me is knowing that I know the truth and I'm listening to mm. it in real time. That's also going on merch. I know the truth and I'm listening to it in real time. <laughs> That's perfect for a shirt. You're just like a, you just crank them out. Like you've got all these quotes. But I know what you mean though. Like you having context to what that father's scream meant. That's what's chilling. That's that, what like rocks you to the core. So I'm happy I got to rock your word a little bit, baby. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for doing it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the Creepers for listening. This has been a fantastic episode. I'm happy we got to cover it. I didn't know it was going to be on the docket. I like made a switch last minute, but I'm really happy we did. Sound off in the comments. Let us know what you thought of this case, where you sort of stand on the division of psychology in this, because there's a lot of debate on Reddit. And with that, we're going to catch you guys on an episode next week. Thank you again for all of the support on the merch. Stu. Shall we say it? Goodbye. And good luck and get it on a cap now, y'all. Get it on a cap now. Goodbye and good luck, honey. Bye, guys. Bye, creepers. <laughs>